Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Our guest this week is Ann Caprera, the current chief of staff for Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. Ann has been a notable name in Democratic politics in a very short period of time. She started out at Emily's List in research, rising to deputy research director in just two years. Before the age of 30, she had served as chief of staff for two members of Congress, Congresswoman Betty Sutton of Ohio, and then as campaign manager and chief of staff for Congresswoman Betsy Markey of Colorado. Over the years that followed, she held several high-level positions in some of the most important organizations in Democratic politics. She was political director at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, vice president of campaigns at Emily's List, and executive director of Priorities USA, the largest Democratic presidential super PAC. Anne has been rightly recognized. In 2019, Politico's playbook included her on its list of 19 people to watch, and she was recently named by Chicago Magazine as one of the 50 most powerful women in Chicago. I am so pleased to have her as my guest today, and I hope you enjoy her brilliance, her candor, and her humor. We recorded this episode on January 29th. Anne Caprera, welcome to Staffer. Jim Papa, it is so good to be talking to you again. It is wonderful to be talking with you as well. Um, the way I like uh, to start uh, these interviews is by talking about kind of where people grew up and, and how they grew up. Um, but before I dive in, I do need to talk about football, which is something we haven't really talked about in the past. Mm -hmm. You, mm -hmm. a proud daughter of Philadelphia. I am a New York Giants fan, and there was a bit of controversy at the end of our seasons. There I was. Want, I want to see if we can find any agreement between <laughs> us that the Eagles were right to fire their coach, Doug Peterson. I don't know if we can. I mean, I have very mixed emotions about the firing of Doug Peterson. And I will say that it was happening in the midst of like a ton of drama in our country. And it, it did provide a little bit of a respite that uh, Eagles Twitter was was fully uh, run amok over Doug Peterson. <laughs> so, um, so I don't know. I haven't sorted out my feelings about the okay. firing of Doug Peterson. Well, in a parallel universe, Giants Twitter was also... Uh, <laughs> Very engaged well, in that conversation. Here's the problem. Doug Peterson took the Eagles to their first Super Bowl ever. Right. And for that, um, I will be forever grateful to him. So it's it's a little bit hard to separate uh, my feelings over that with the dumpster fire that was the Eagles season this past year. Understandable. I do. I do understand that. So I, I mentioned Philadelphia. Uh, anyone who knows you or follows you on Twitter knows how important it is. Um, talk to me a bit about growing up and, and specifically, Anne, um, I would like to hear you talk about your mom, who you've written really movingly about you lost at a young age. And just from being someone who reads your posts on Facebook, um, she sounded like an incredible woman and had such an impact on you. And I'd love to hear you talk about her. Sure. Well, thanks for asking me. I have to say of all the podcasts and interviews I've done, I don't get to talk about my mom a lot. So it's nice when I do. Um, you know, I, I did. I lost her when I was 12 and kind of tragic car accident. And um, she was a journalist. She wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She um, actually, right before she died, she'd started a company writing and was doing magazines and newspapers and 
um, kind of was working freelance and I think was hoping to grow that business and um, unfortunately was cut off really young. But um, I, you know, I, I saw her doing that in kind of some of my most formative years. You know, she was really involved in just, um, she loved reporting and she loved writing. And she would take me with her uh, to, uh, you know, assignments she had. Um, she would, she would, she gave me a typewriter when I was 11 years old, which was kind of a precocious gift for an 11 year old. And this was pre-computers, pre all of that. So a typewriter was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And um, I remember once she took me to a, uh, <laughs> to a bookathon that a local school was hosting and she gave me kind of a pad, a piece of paper and said, you know, go off and uh, do your own interviews. So I did because I, you know, I thought that this was a lot of fun. And I came back to the typewriter and I typed up my whole uh, story for her and I handed it in. And then the story actually came out in the Philadelphia Inquirer a couple of weeks later. Oh, that's cool. And um, I remember actually going through and highlighting the sections that I thought I had contributed to. And I gave her a bill. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, all credit to my mother that she was like, you're right. Here's five dollars. And um, but it was, you know, it was thinking back now, it was like a really formative experience to see her working. And and it's it's very odd because she passed like before social media, before all of the, you know, the Internet, like all the things that we have today. Whereas I feel like when people die in the modern age, there's so much of them that remains online. Um, and so it's 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 a very mixed feeling for me because going through my career, there's so many things that I would be interested to see what she would think about. And, and um, you know, I'd, I'd love the chance to talk to her as an adult and I never really had that. But there are moments, particularly in the stuff that I do that I, really stop and think, wow, I, I've had an opportunity to do things that I don't think she had the opportunity to do. I mean, she was a woman growing up in the 70s and 80s, really. And I think uh, she never got a chance to go to college. Um, and so I, I remember in the years before she died, she used to talk about wanting to do speech writing. And she specifically wanted to do speech writing for, for uh Bill Bradley was running in New Jersey. I think he's thinking about running for Senate. And I remember talking to her about it. Not really. I mean, again, I was like 11 and, you know, what was speech writing to an 11 year old? But it, it certainly stuck with me through the years. And when I've had the opportunity now over on many occasions to write a speech um, for for the governor, for uh, for Congress people I've worked for, for senators, um, and it's always a poignant moment for me to watch somebody deliver a speech that I've had a role in because uh, it's something I love to do. It's not my main career. I'm not a speechwriter by trade. I really hold on to it because it's just something I love and I enjoy. And so when I have the opportunity, I do it. Um, but I, I always sit there and think, wow, I got a chance to do this thing that she really wanted to do. And um, and it's very much a part of my day to day life in, in so many different ways. So, yeah, it's, a, it's very cool. Oh, that is beautiful. Um, yeah. So politics and and current events were a part of your growing up. Um, I, I've asked about your mom, but what about your dad? You know, I mean, what was what <laughs> my dad? Is, my dad's still around and kicking. In fact, he 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 still lives in the Philadelphia area. He uh, he got his COVID shot this morning, so I, I was very pleased to hear about that. Um, you know, look, he my dad's a he's a trial lawyer and. 
I think I get a lot of my drive from my dad. Um, you know, he doesn't shy away from an argument, uh, neither do I. He, um, he was probably the first person that I got into political arguments with. Um, he was, I grew up Republican and I became a Democrat and as you know, a big Democrat um, in college. And so, you know, my father had, you know, he'd been a Reagan Republican. Like he was just always kind of hawking for the GOP. And I, you'll appreciate this. In, in 2010, uh, when I was working for Betsy Markey, he and I were on the phone and he was telling me how, you know, Democrats are going to raise my taxes and I don't know who I'm going to vote for in November. And I remember saying to him, Dad, you know that like if the Democrats lose, that I'm going to lose my job. <laughs> and it was like this lightning bolt moment for him because he, you know, I always tell him, you're, you work for a polling firm. I always say it's like that question, like, is this going to impact your personal financial you know, self. Yeah. And, I, and my father was like, oh, my God, you know, my daughter's going to lose her job if I don't vote Democrat. And he he went and switched his voter registration. Like, I, you know, nice. and it was Good such, work. such a like dad thing to do. <laughs> yes. But I've always appreciated it about him because um, he takes as much, you know, pride in my career and follows every little thing I do. And, um, you know, I I I just, uh, it's it's so nice that I have him around, and I it's been it's been a while since I've gotten to see him, which has been hard. But um, you know, he he was the first person I called when all the stuff happened with the pandemic, and I said, hey, you 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 know, this is for real, and I need you to stay safe because I can't worry about the state of Illinois and you at the same time. Um, but he's always been he's always been one of my biggest cheerleaders, and he still is, and he's uh, he's he's a funny guy. He's got a He's got a real sense of humor and um, he's always cracking me up because, you know, he kind of comes on and off social media. Uh, you know, he 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 opened a Twitter account years ago and I was like, please stay as far away from Twitter. As <laughs> it's you dangerous. Can. And he was like, you do it. I'm like, I you like it's going to take too long for me to explain to you how dangerous Twitter is. So he kind of has his he has a soapbox on Facebook and um, but it's always I miss him. And I love him, and he's uh, he's had a big influence in my life. So yeah, well, um, you know, you mentioned your competitive drive, and something I read about you in preparation for this was a quote from Guy Cecil, um, who you know, for those who are very familiar with Democratic politics, they know the name Guy Cecil, who heads up Priorities USA, the biggest Democratic uh, super PAC for uh, presidential candidates. He described you as quote relentless in the pursuit of winning. <laughs> which I love. Um, you know, you've worked, you're in an official job now. You're a, a big official job, chief of staff to the governor of Illinois. You've also run many campaigns and they are certainly the yin and yang, right, of of this work. But do yes. you have a preference? You know, I I don't know that I do. Um, I I love campaigns I love being a chief of staff. Um, I think people think they're more different than they actually are. Um, I don't think you can have politics without policy, and I don't think you can have policy without politics. And the intersection of those two things, um, which I've seen from both sides of the, 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 the coin here, is fascinating to me. Um, and I think 
something I've learned on the, the official side over the years, not just in this job, but, you know, I was working for a member of Congress is, you know, you can't just campaign with total abandon, right? Like you really do have to have a sense of, can I keep the promises that I make to the people while I'm campaigning? And on the same side of it, you can't campaign without, or you can't govern without a sense of the politics behind everything you do and the, the message and the story that you're telling people about why you're doing something. Um, and so I, I love the intersection of those two things. I think it's, I think being on the government side has made me better as a um, staffer on a campaign and being a staffer on a campaign has made me better as a staffer on the governor side, uh, on the government side. Um, you know, I've I've talked to audiences where, you know, a, a question from the audience that's fairly common is like, what will it take to remove the politics from governing? And There's no removing the politics from governing. Yeah. It's like the flower that is in the cake, like everything right. that comes through is just infused with politics. And that's that's not wrong. Right. That's actually the energy that's infusing right. the policymaking. I I I still have the same feeling, Jim, and I and I tell this to people because I get a similar question. You know, how can we, how can everything be less political? And it, this is what I say to people. So I'm I grew up. I'm the oldest of five kids, right? And pre-pandemic, when we would come home for Christmas, we always pick a movie for the whole family to see, right? And um, it, for years, the controversy over this movie was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> like, you know, there would be fights and arguments and you know somebody would want to see one movie and they somebody else had already seen it and it got so bad that by you know four or five years ago um we decided that we were going to pick the movie over the summer like <laughs> we were going to say we know star wars is coming out you know in december so no one goes see star wars we're going to go see that together and that's seven people that love each other right like <laughs> So start to take that to Congress or a governor's office or a state legislature or whatever, you know, governmental body you want to think about. And, you know, politics is always going to have a part in it because politics is about people's passions and the things they're happy about, the things they're mad about, the things they're sad about. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, partisan politics should cloud every decision, but it but it does mean that you should be paying attention to what's driving people and what they're showing up on and what they're listening to and caring about. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I've never thought that's a bad thing. And I think that you ignore that at your own peril because people do signal to you what they're going to care about. I mean, there are, you can read the electorate um, and it's, I don't think it's actually that hard to do if you're paying attention. So, yeah. You know, I was going to ask this later, but since we're here now, you know, the situation in Washington today is mm -hmm. not good. It's yeah. as it's <laughs> as stressful and as tense um, and damaged as I've ever seen it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but it is not just Washington. Right. I mean, obviously, the riot happened on Capitol Hill and it is appalling and devastating emotionally and in reality, like people's lives still are at risk today. Um, but that's true for every state capital. It's true for every district office. There are people working in all these places where they're at some level of elevated risk. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about Illinois um, and what you're experiencing and what's on your mind when 
you know, you've got to be concerned as a as a participant in the policymaking process and also as a manager of people who are coming to work every day and they've got families at home. Sure. Well, look, there's two things I would say at the front. The vast majority of people I've interacted with in Illinois, particularly around the last year, have been wonderful. Um, they know that there are sacrifices that have to be made around controlling the pandemic. They care a great deal about their government, about their neighbor, about the people in and out of office. Um, and as we were saying earlier, there's always a lot of passion in politics, and that's always been a part of it. I will say I've never seen anything like the last year, uh, both professionally and personally, in terms of dealing with the vitriol that comes at us. Um, as to my boss, um, as a governor, to my staff, um, who all are working on different aspects of the pandemic. Um, to take a step back for a second, I mean, you and I first met each other because we, you were working at the White House and the Obama White House, and I was working for a freshman member of Congress. And the, you know, when I saw what happened on January 6th, the first thing that came to my mind was, I remember where this started, really. I mean, it has roots in a whole bunch of history in our country. But I can almost take it back to a day and a moment, um, which is when we passed health care on the Hill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was working for a freshman member in a red district who had decided to vote yes on the bill. And a ton of Tea Party protesters had showed up on Capitol Hill. And our staff was in the office. We were voting on a weekend. And I remember the Capitol Police actually coming around and saying, we're asking everybody to go home except for the members who were going to go over to vote because there are people roaming the hallways, shoving things under doors and kind of coming and confronting staffers. And even just on the walk over from the Longworth building to the Capitol, you know, there were all those protesters on the lawn. Somebody, I, you know, Nancy Pelosi was making the walk across and there were people spinning at her and John Lewis. And um, and I remember watching that and thinking, wow, this is this is pretty wild. I, I you know, I, this is not something I've ever experienced or or been the target of before. And I wasn't, you know, front and center in that people were focused on my boss. They were focused on Democratic leadership at the time. Um, and so when I saw what happened in January, you know, there was almost like this resigned sense of, yeah, this is the inevitable conclusion of all this. And, you know, what what does that look like in Illinois for the past year? Well, I mean, it means I get every threat that comes into the governor. I, I'm the first person to hear about it. Um, and there certainly have been plenty of those. Um, it means, you know, we make a policy decision around a mitigation effort. And in one instance this year, we had protesters showing up at the homes of our staff. Um, what comes at us on social media is gross. Um, and I don't get the worst of it, actually. Our press secretary, Jordan Abadea, who um, for a period of time, the governor was giving daily press briefings. And she was reading questions off of a um, virtual template for people to bring questions in. So she became a like a person on the media in and of itself because people were tuning into these press conferences and they were seeing Jordan ask questions. And occasionally she'll tweet out what the replies are to her. And they're as disgusting as you might think they are. Um, you know, it's, it's calls and voicemails at one point uh, my personal cell phone got leaked out and 
um, people were leaving messages. And then I had somebody who was calling from an unknown number and they would just breathe on the other end of the line. And, you know, these things, you deal with them, I think, if you're in this business, at some point in time during the course of your career, you will have dealt with something like this. But the sustained nature of it, the um, in some places, the coordinated effort behind it, um, the governor's family has uh, just the harassment and um, the targeting of his school age kids, um, you know, to the point where, you know, his daughter left the state at one point. Um, it, it's just I've never seen anything like it. It's incredibly wearing and hard to deal with. I think we're all conditioned to say, you know, this is the job and you've got to deal with what comes at you. But I've been in this kind of job for a long time and I've never kind of dealt with what's come at me and at my staff and at my boss over the last year. And it's it just, um, you know, I sat down the other night, I can cotton home and, you know, we're dealing with vaccine rollout and all this other stuff. And um, I, I had one of these moments where I just like sat down on my stairs because I was just so tired. Like I had been taking phone calls and I'd be doing everything else. And I ended up calling a friend to talk and she said, she said, you sound exhausted. And I said, I do. And I said, I am exhausted. I said, and it's, it's a different kind of exhaustion than I'm used to. I'm used to the campaign world where everything's going and going and going, but there's a season to that and there's an end to it. And I'm used to even in government where, you know, you have session and is in the legislature's in session and you're really involved in that but there's a season to that too and it kind of ebbs and flows and this is just not stopped it's not ended there's no you know doesn't feel like there's an end in sight even though i know there is and i was like the only thing i could compare it to is you know when you uh when someone dies that you really love and you go to their funeral and then afterwards usually there's a luncheon or something and everybody's kind of laughing and crying and drinking and then you get home at the end of the night and you're just so tired and you know you're going to fall asleep, but you know you're going to wake up the next day and you're going to be just as tired as the night before. And that's what it feels like. I mean, that's really what doing this work right now feels like. And all that stuff that, you know, combined to form whatever happened on January 6th is part of that. Um, and I have tremendous sympathy for what people are going through right now. Uh, it, it is so incredibly hard to deal with the here and now. I don't care who you are, how you've been affected. You know, the the people in the best circumstances are, are feeling the pressure and stress of this. And that's before you get to the people who really have suffered the most. Um, but I, you know, I remind friends and family and other people who share dumb stuff on Facebook and other things that there is a face that's being targeted by that. And it's your, in some cases, your your relative or your cousin or the staffer that you worked with and interacted with or the governor and his family. And I think people have to get that through their head anymore because to a certain degree, they just have stopped remembering that, you know, people are human. Yeah. And it's terrifying. Yeah. You, um, you have led multiple organizations Chief of Staff to two different members of Congress, um, political director at the DSCC, executive director of Priorities USA. You're in the role you're in now. And this year, to your point, has been awful. What yes. do you, you know, as the leader of this organization, 
obviously under the governor, but as his chief of staff. How do you, you know, what do you communicate to your staff to, to balance this, this emotional drain? But there is also a real job to do. Like, and, and you know, even without COVID, we would be saying we got to put one foot ahead of the other. Now we're dealing with a pandemic and it's, right. the demands are higher than ever. So the first thing I say to them and I say it to them constantly is uh, we are going to be judged in uh, months and years and not days and weeks. And it sounds so simple, but as you know, when you get into the tumult of day-to-day social media, press conferences, you know, people sending letters and calling your office and being upset about stuff, you know, when we were in the earliest days of the pandemic and we had to make decisions about mitigations, which was devastatingly hard, and we had no help from the federal government at the Mm -hmm. time. Um, everybody had a better plan, according to them, than we did. And there were some that I'm sure were better. I mean, and if I could go back to the beginning and do it all over again, there's plenty of things I would do differently. Um, but I also knew that we just had to pick a path and go. And that sometimes the lack of making a decision, that's making a decision in and of itself. So you have to be the engine behind everybody going, okay, like, is that the decision you're making? All right, let's go on to the next one. And... I think that's hard for for political people because we're used to living in kind of the day-to-day moment of politics and what's hot right now and and this pandemic is so different. You know, it's just it's a course that's got to be charted over time and you have to understand um you know, what are you what are your goals? And your goals actually have to be really simple in a crisis like this. I the governor and I sat down at the beginning of it. He's told the story a million times, but it's so indicative of kind of how we've thought all the way through. You know, we had modelers come to us at the very early months and because we're trying to get our heads around like what is going to happen here, you know, and and how much danger are we in and you know, what can be done to stop it. And they put a sheet in front of us that said, "Okay, if you just proceed forward with no shutdowns, no mitigations, no stay-at-home orders, nothing. This many people are going to die. And if you do mitigations, you know, what we've come to to call, like, you know, all these mitigation measures, this many less people are going to die. And I've never been handed a chart like that in my career ever. Uh, And I remember just thinking in my head, okay, this is... This is everything very clearly, right? This is just, you have one of two choices. And I brought that into the governor. He, he had the same like, oh my God moment with it. And I think he and I think back to that moment all, like every week, you know, when we're, when we're trying to make decisions about what to do next. Um, you know, making sure that our hospitals didn't get overloaded, which, knock on wood, we've, we've managed to be able to do. And now making sure that this vaccine rollout happens as quickly and as as, um, as efficiently as we can possibly achieve under the circumstances we're in. You know, that stuff, you kind of have to keep it front of mind for everybody. And we laugh a lot in our office. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in humor. And I rem- try to remember that people need to get up for air every once in a while. Um, you know, when we were, when we were in like kind of the darkest days of all this, we would do a meeting every night at seven o'clock to just, you know, kind of go through what had happened during the day. 
and I would make everybody stay until somebody, until three people would share some positive note or story or tweet or text that they had gotten that day, um, just so that people would go home remembering, hey, you know, this work we're doing is really important and there are people who appreciate that we're doing it. Um, yeah. But this has been a unique challenge. I mean, having to stay in the no office doubt. and like, you know, you can't have a party. You can't take everybody out for a drink. You can't, you know, organize some sort of worse fun event. Like there's yeah. just none of that. Right. So right. Um, it really is just keeping everybody focused on the long-term goal. So the, you know, being in a governor's office is so vast compared to many jobs, big jobs in Washington. Right. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the White House is is its own animal. But even if you're a, a senator or working in the House office, they're much smaller operations and you're and you have fewer levers to mm -hmm. play with. What would be helpful since you've worked in both? What do you think would be helpful for people in Washington to know about the work happening in state capitals? Oh, that's a. That's a big, interesting question. Um, I, you know, it's funny because I have worked at all. Like I've worked at the congressional level. I've worked at the Senate level. Um, and now I've, you know, I've worked at the state level. The only place I actually haven't worked is, is in the White House. And um, I was I was not planning on coming to Illinois and staying and being a chief of staff here for a governor. It really boiled down to I have a really great boss and I didn't want to leave. Um, it's so different from being a chief of staff on the Hill. Uh, you know, when I was a chief of staff on the Hill, you're right. You have this, you have a smaller staff, you have a smaller footprint. You're doing really important work um, and it's different work. I mean, it's some of the stuff that you're focused on is just fundamentally different. Being in a governor's, governor's office, I, there's just nothing that's not your job. I mean, <laughs> really, truly. And I, this like crashed home to me. I had taken the job as chief of staff. We were a couple months in and we um, unfortunately had a shooting at a, at a local um, local company. It was pretty terrible. And um, we, you know, rushed the governor out to, to speak to the media and to be there. And it was the first time that I really like kind of came home to me. Wow. Like anything that happens in the state, you know, we have to we have to be all over and for good reason, because people have that expectation of their governor and they should. Um, but I think that what I wish people in D.C. would understand sometimes is particularly right now. That it's not a theoretical conversation for us about, you know, how you talk about COVID or what you do to, to deal with the pandemic or you know, whether or not there's going to be certain um, help sent to the states. I mean, we follow every single little piece of that very, very closely. And some of the stuff is is, you know, life or death for us, particularly right now. Yeah. And I, you know, having been around the Senate and the House as we've watched, for example, this uh, state and local aid bill try to make its way through Congress. You know, I think some of my colleagues here are like, well, yeah, I saw I read in Politico this morning. They're, you know, they're debating it. And I'm like, like we are so far away from a vote, like, you know. And so it's 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 a challenge, but it's just a different type of challenge. And um, I've loved it, to be honest. I mean, even as hard as this year has been, I think being able to, like, be in the thick of it and help organize and 
you know, get in the middle of any crisis you're dealing with has just been, it's, it, it suits my personality very well. And, um, it gives me an enormous amount of pride to be part of all this stuff. So, um, it's great work. I, I tell people all the time they should think about co-ed estates and doing the work out here. Well, voters elect candidates and, um, you never know what you're going to get once you elect somebody about their staff. And the people of Illinois have no idea how fortunate they are to have oh, you goodness. as the governor's chief of staff. And I mean that. It's not just your personality that suits this job. It's like everything about you that suits this job. And this and this moment, as difficult as it is, um, you also do a lot of hiring, right? Mm-hmm. So when you bring people onto the governor's staff, what what are you looking for in a staffer? Oh, great question. I look for a lot of things. Um, one, I, I, a sense of humor, really, genuinely. Like I, if I, <laughs> if somebody walks in and they just have no, you know, sense of humor at all, it's going to be hard for me to get along with them. Um, you know, I want people who are really, really good at what they do and able to kind of run off and do it. I've worked for managers in the past that hire really, really smart people and then they micromanage every little thing they're doing. And I don't know why you would do that. Like, you know, I want people that complement my weaknesses. I look for that in staffers. I'm trying to find somebody who, you know, picks up at a, a part of my portfolio or resume that isn't as, as strong as it needs to be. When I worked on campaigns, I always hire like a top-notch field director, for example, because I didn't come from field. I came from comms and research. So, uh-huh. um, <clears throat> so I want that. I want... I want to see that people are committed and passionate about the job they're applying for. I don't really care whether you went to Harvard or, you know, a state school or a community college or you didn't go to college at all. I really don't look at that line of the resume. Like, I want to see, you know, a passion for the work. I want to see um, that there's kind of a sense in you about what your vision is for what you want to come do. Uh, And the best interviews I have with people, you know, they walk in and they've got a thousand ideas and they're so excited to be there. And um, there's something about the governor or his agenda that's really gotten them going. Um, And it's it's you want to just see a sense of like, hey, this is this is some someplace I really want to be and something I really want to be doing. Um, You know, look, I also look for. I always ask people what their first job was. I want to hear, you know, did you have customer service experience somewhere along the way? You know, what was the first like hard situation you had to deal with at, at a job? Um, I get really fascinating answers, especially especially from people who have been in the workplace, you know, 20, 30 years. The stuff that they yeah. come back at you with is really interesting. Um, and it's just I want to. Uh, the governor has a has a rule that I also have that we affectionately call the no asshole rule. Uh, right on. And essential. Uh, it's essential because like there's so much teamwork that goes into these jobs and you spend so much time with these people. And if you if they're not nice and you don't like them and they're not empathetic and they can't, you know, listen and hear a coworker and be respectful towards a coworker, that's incredibly important. And I, you know, I'm always trying to figure that out. And I would say, finally, you know, one of the most important things right now is how hiring for diversity in your staff. You know, you want um, racial and ethnic diversity. You want uh, cultural diversity. You want geographic diversity. Um, 
And you want those people sitting in a room with you when you're making decisions. So, you know, I'm always kind of hiring with an eye to that. Like, how are we making sure that this staff really represents the state and that when people come in and, and meet with us, that they're like, oh, OK, there's somebody on that team that is speaking to something I really care about or, or has an understanding of something I really care about. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of stuff that I look for. In hiring, yeah, but- that's great. That's um, it actually leads me to a question I like to ask um, often. I have this fantasy that one day I will raise money and build a Hall of Fame to staffers on the <laughs> National Mall. And uh, I'm taking nominations. So <laughs> I am really interested if you've got one uh, in your nominee to the Stafford Hall of Fame. The Stafford Hall of Fame. I actually have two. Okay. Um, one would be Christy Roberts, who um, works at the DSCC now, uh, ran John Tester's campaign a couple years ago. Uh, she's in many ways the unsung hero of the Raphael Warnock uh, election down in Georgia. She got sent down there by the DS uh, to help uh, run things in the final two months. Um, wow. But we worked together years ago at the DS. She started a research like I did. Um, uh, we played on a flag football team together in D.C. and won the championship in 2016. And Christy Very and I impressive. Were both on Very impressive. So um, one would be Christy, and the other one would be uh, – Quentin Folks, who's um, my, he was my deputy on JB's campaign. Um, he uh, has has stayed here in, in Illinois to help run the governor's political operation. We worked together at Priorities and at Emily's List. Um, and he's just a incredibly hard worker and somebody who pays attention to every single little detail of what you're doing and what he's doing. So. So those would be my two. Love it. Those are both great. Um, okay, one more for you. And mm-hmm. it is it is really my favorite question. And it's called In the Vault. Tell me a time when you royally screwed up and what you learned from it. This is a really good question. Um, so when I was working for Congresswoman Betsy Markey, she was um, a great congresswoman from the 4th District of Colorado. Um elected to a district that was six points more Republican than it was Democratic. And um, we were in the midst of the craziness of twenty of 2009 and 2010. Obama's first term, there was a lot going on. You, re- you remember it fondly. I was there with you every you, step of the you way. You were there with me. Um, we, you know... Trying to make a decision about how she was going to legislate in that seat was incredibly difficult because at heart, Betsy is a true progressive. Um, And so am I. And yet we were in this incredibly conservative district. And I remember we were trying to figure out where were the places that we needed to deviate from the national democratic agenda, if you will. Um, and one of the things we chose was the NRA. We decided that she was going to be more pro-gun, um, because that's, that was the makeup of the district. And I remember I came into her and there was a letter that the NRA wanted her to sign. And, um, I, I, to, to be honest, I cannot remember what the topic was, but it was 
probably one of the inane, stupid things that they kind of circulated every two or three months. And I remember her looking at me going like, I really don't want to sign this letter. Like, it's really not what I want to do. And I made a whole argument to her that, you know, look, the bill that they were referencing wasn't going to pass. And it just didn't really matter in the great scheme of things. And, you know, this would be something that we could at least campaign on back at the district. And um, and she, she still really didn't want to sign it. But she did because I pressured her to. And a year later, you know, the NRA endorsed our opponent, um, even though she had like an A rating with them. And I couldn't get the thought of that stupid letter out of my head. Uh, you know, I hadn't felt good about it when I was putting it in front of her. I knew she hadn't felt good about it. And I really took away from that, you know, look, you should be responsive to the people you represent. You shouldn't just take a knee-jerk partisan position because you you have a D or an R after your name. But you also shouldn't have set aside you know, your own personal beliefs, the things that you think are right and wrong in order to try to achieve a political objective. And I, I will say that experience like genuinely scarred me. Um, I, I, I felt so terrible about it afterwards. Um, and I, I apologized to Betsy later on because I just thought I had made a mistake in, in pushing her to do this. And then, you know, to top it all off, like the NRA completely screwed us in the election. So it wasn't even like the things that I had been trying to achieve got achieved. And it is a lesson that has stuck with me ever since. And I I will say I'm grateful in the sense that it has led me to advise everybody I've worked for after to just be radically authentic. And, you know, even if you believe in something that may seem at counter purposes to the district you represent or the place that you are. Um, if it's that important to you, just hold that position and, and don't apologize for it. Explain it, talk about it, you know, be ready to tell people why this is important to you. Um, but don't compromise those things because you think you're gonna get some political bump from it. Cause the reality is those things never work out that way. You know, um... That is such an important story. And we've, you know, for those of us who have advised elected officials, like we've all been there. And there are two things I want to like call out. One is sometimes when you are the chief of staff, it's actually your job to say the unpopular thing, to to put forward the option that is more political than the member might be thinking at that moment. Right. It's your job to present options, explore downfalls, explore opportunities. Right. And, you know, that means sometimes, as I said, doing, you know, putting forward an idea that maybe you don't even love in your heart, but your head, like you are, that's, that's your role is to play you know, the role of the calculator at times. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you one other story, Jim, that like you'll appreciate because you were a part of this. So, you know, the, you had the NRA example with Betsy, but then there was healthcare, right? And she was initially a no on the health care bill um, for all different sorts of reasons. And it went through, you know, we took that torturous path through the Senate and came back to the House. And thanks to Nancy Pelosi, it hit the House floor. And a couple of days, about a week before the vote, you know, she said to me, Betsy said to me, I, I don't care what this does to my reelection. 
I'm going to be a yes on this bill. And I can't look my kids in the eye. And I, I knew at the time, I was like, you're absolutely right. Like, we're just going to have to map it out. And, but to your point about being the popular person, right at that point in time, uh, Barack Obama was coming to the Hill to give a like rah rah healthcare speech, right? And Betsy wanted to go to this thing worse than you could possibly imagine. I mean, <laughs> she wanted to be there. And she said to me, um, Well, I'm just gonna call Ron Emanuel and tell him I'm a yes. And I and I was like, No, you're absolutely not gonna do that. <laughs> I said, You're gonna go into the White House and you're gonna have a list of things that you're gonna ask for for the district. And, you know, and and it, not until he says yes to all those things, are you going to come back and vote for that bill? I and, remember you know, that meeting. <laughs> I remember that meeting. You you and Betsy were on one con- couch. Yeah. Ram and I were on the other couch looking at each other. He had his notebook open and we went through that list of demands and you drove a hard bargain. Yes. And, and to Rob's credit, he was like, I'll give you this. I'll give you this. I'll give you this. And I just remember like... I was there to just make sure Betsy didn't cave because all she wanted to do was come in and be like, I'm a yes for healthcare. I'm here. I'll do it. <laughs> well, you know, that was the other thing that I was going to take from the, even the initial story. And this goes to Betsy and and other members, um, like never forgetting purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you have in spades. I am sure the governor benefits greatly from it and and also, you know, make sure that all those around him know it. It is like, mm-hmm. what are you here for? And and just newsflash, it's not to be reelected. That's right. not the purpose. Right. It's... It is to do good. And if you do good enough, you should get reelected. And I think so many people have forgotten that. And now well, they're in this trap. Voters give you credit for that. They really, really do. And I, I'd be remiss to go through this whole podcast and not talk about my current boss, who's amazing. Yes, um, well, I was going to ask. Yes. <laughs> he, um, one of the greatest things about JB is that um, he wants a robust debate in front of him. Um, if you show up to a meeting and you are not reg- ready to argue a position even if it's counter to the one that he's holding and, and back it up with facts, you're not going to last long with him. Um, he's an incredibly kind and interesting person. And he keeps that that adage you just talked about, you know, do what's best for people and then the politics will follow front of mind and things. And I see it pay off for him in so many different ways, even when in the moment that we made the decision, it seemed really hard to do whatever we were doing. Um but, you know, people just they give him credit for it uh, on the back end. And, you know, during the pandemic, he wakes up at you know, two or three o'clock in the morning. He's a very early riser. He sleeps about four hours a night. He reads every little thing about COVID-19, the the response, the the research we have on it, what's going on with the vaccine, what's going on with testing. I mean, it, he is so involved in the details. It's up. Most of the times it's great. There are times when I start pulling my hair out a little bit, but you certainly want that as opposed to somebody who's detached from all the details. And, I, you know, but what I really appreciate about him is that there have been many times where I've walked into the, his office, closed the door and said, we can't do this or this is not a good idea or, you know, I disagree with you. There are times when he's overruled me. I mean, I, I think I win more than I lose, but there's times that he overrules me. Sure. And I respect that and we move on. Um, but 
he always listens. And I, I'm just always amazed at politicians and bosses, frankly, in, in the political sphere especially, who want people around them who are yes people, you know, who just say, wow, you just, you came up with such a brilliant idea and thank God you came up with that idea and we're, you know, it's just so smart. Um, I made that observation in front of JP once to a crowd and he goes, well, what's that like? (laughs) 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 Um, He's he's a really, you want that kind of boss. You know, I know, I know that one of the points of this podcast is to talk to people about what it's like being on staff and everything. You know, you want someone who is going to encourage debate. You want somebody who's intellectually curious. You want somebody who's going to treat you kindly, even when you disagree. You want someone who um, cares about what they're doing because it's the right thing to do and not because it might be the popular thing to do or it might be the most politically expedient thing to do. Um, And... I certainly have that in a boss right now. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've worked for people in the past who've been that way. And I will say it it really, you can't help but be driven by that mentality when you have been surrounded by it in your professional career. I think people sometimes, you know, make a decision to go work for somebody or jump onto a campaign or jump into an office because they think, oh, this is a prominent person or, you know, they have a path to X, Y, Z. And I just always tell people, start with, is this a good person? Is this somebody you want to work for? Is this somebody that, you know, you want to sit across and have a meal with? Like, you know, is this somebody that you, you're going to be okay laying yourself out on the line for? Because that really is what we do in these jobs. So, um, And yeah. that was so well put. And it is a perfect note to end on because um, there's such wisdom in it. And I want to say... Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for spending this time with me and and being so um, candid and um, authentic with every answer. I am the biggest admirer of yours, and I I can't thank you enough. Well, I miss you, Jim Papa. I miss uh, I miss getting to work with you, and um, it was a real treat when you emailed me. I was like, oh gosh, it's great to to actually talk to some of my old friends again. <laughs> I know. Well, let's change that. 21. Yes. Let's figure Absolutely. out something. New year. New, new year. year. New year, new administration. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Well, friends, I can smell the jet fumes at National Airport, which means another episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And please make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.